Luke chapter 9, the song that um, Zach wrote and they sang today was just a perfect lead into the message today because we're going to see that Peter, just like any of us would be, he didn't want to lead the moment uh, of the transfiguration. But we, we come, that having been said, we come now to the climactic moment of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And this is the most important moment until the cross. Uh, by and large, Jesus has been in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee now for three years. That's mainly where he stayed. Luke has been telling us and showing us who Jesus is by gradually revealing more and more about Christ as the narrative moves along. And so to view the glorified Christ is the most spectacular moment that the three disciples have experienced. There's literally no way to put this into words. There's no way to adequately describe the glory of Jesus Christ. As you think about the flow of the life and ministry of Jesus and the flow of Luke, you come to realize how pivotal this particular moment is. Up until this point, the disciples have experienced the greatness of the glory of, the, of Christ mainly through miracles and his teaching. He just sent them out to, to ministry and to preach in his power. Remember, he gave them the ability to heal, to cast out demons, to do all these things. That's heady ministry. I'd love to be able to do that. Wouldn't you? But there's an ominous warning when they get back. He asks them, who, who am I? And Peter said, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus said, look, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to have to be, suffer and die on the cross. And if you're going to follow me, you are too. And so the transfiguration is a, a very important move, uh, moment because from there, they're up on Mount Hermon, a few thousand feet above sea level. They, go, they start traveling down and they keep going down. They get to the Sea of Galilee, which you know I've told you many times, 600 feet below sea level. And then you start traveling down the Jordan Valley. You get to the lowest city in the world. Still is the lowest city in the world. Jericho is, is almost 1,200 feet below sea level. And then they go to Jerusalem. And they're going to, as they travel closer and closer to Jerusalem, it's very clear that there's more and more opposition to Christ and to his followers. And so the, the uh, transfiguration, if you think about it, is the, it's, it's to experience the greatness and glory of Christ in this moment and uh, shows them in no uncertain terms that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and it gives them the courage and, and what they need to keep enduring through this. This moment is so important that Peter, in um, his second epistle, mentions it. He talks about it. And so this is, this is a needed moment in their life in order to help them follow Christ. That being said, let's stand together. We read Luke chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse number um, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took 
with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, Luke is connecting the very previous episode where he said, I'm the Christ and I must suffer. So this is all connected with what uh, we heard last time. And as he was praying, the, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came, became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and no one told, and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Lord, uh, for several weeks now, I have been excited about this message to proclaim glorified Christ. And yet, the week that I begin to prepare, it's been filled with um, difficulties and setbacks, and distractions, and distractions, and distractions. And so, Lord, um, I'm going to ask that you do what needs to be done, because this, I feel completely inadequate standing up here trying to describe Christ. And I pray that you will take that, and you will put in the hearts of your people just a thirst and hunger to see the glory of Christ in Scripture and eventually in glory. In His name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you remember last week, look, look in your Bibles, verse number 27. The last thing that Jesus said to the disciples was this, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It is not entirely certain what, what Jesus had in mind when he spoke about seeing God's kingdom, but he may well have meant the glorious revelation that three of the disciples saw right here. Uh, we call this the Mount of Transfiguration. It was their unique privilege to see something uh, before they died that most believers only see after they die. Think about it. They saw something that you will only see after you die unless the Lord comes back first. The glory of the Son of God. Now they went up the mountain for a private prayer meeting. There's a lot of discussion about what mountain that happens to be. Um, I have a theory, and um, I think it's just as good as anybody else's theory, to be honest with you. There is a location, um, if you look at all the Gospels together and what they have to say about it, Wherever the transfiguration was, it was very close to Caesarea Philippi uh, because only the three went up and came back. They, they couldn't have been gone more than maybe a couple hours. And so there's a location nearby where possibly the transfiguration, thank you so much, I was almost going to ask somebody for that. <clears throat> um, 
But when they went up for the prayer meeting, it's not entirely certain what Jesus had in mind when he spoke about um, uh, God's kingdom. But these three disciples, their relationship to Jesus seemed closer than the other disciples because several times they're the ones who go to pray with him and not the others. And in reality, this is how anyone develops a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. You spend time in prayer with him. We read God's word so we know more about Jesus and what he desires and what he thinks and who God is. And then we go and we talk with that person that we're getting to know. And so that's how you get to know Jesus. The prayers of these men were a sign that something important was about to happen because in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus prays before each new phase of ministry. For example, he was praying at his baptism in Luke 3.21. He prayed before he called the apostles in Luke 6.12. And in Luke 11.1, he was praying before he taught the disciples how to pray. So this is no ordinary prayer meeting. Look at what it says. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Up until this point, I, 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 please engage with me in this. This is so important. Up until this point, the disciples had only seen Jesus in the limitations of his flesh. You know, Philippians 2, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Here it is. Which is part of the humiliation of his incarnation. As they walked up the mountain, they saw him as they always had, under the veil of his ordinary humanity. As they fell asleep while he was praying, it was the same thing. But in a single instant, in a flash of time, Jesus was revealed to them in all his glorious splendor. What exactly did the disciples see? In what can only be described as the greatest understatement of Scripture, Luke says this, look at what he says, the appearance of his face was altered. <laughs> That's like calling up saying, Mom, I had a little accident or something like that, right? The disciple, um, Matthew is a little bit more telling. He says this. He says, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face, listen to this, shone like the sun. That's how bright the glory of Christ is. Shines like the sun. It was a blinding display of light. Jesus radiated with a divine incandescence. His deity shining through the veil of his humanity. And as the disciples gazed into his face, they saw the radiant luminescence of the absolute pure glory of God's Son. Even his clothes, Luke uses the word 
dazzling, right? You see that? His, his, his um, clothes became dazzling. You know what that word is? It's only used here in the whole New Testament. And it, it's the, I, it's the, describes the light from a lightning bolt. Have you ever been nearby lightning? I have a couple times. I'm sure you have too. And it blinds you, doesn't it? That's his clothes. Mark says, they, they became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So we're, we're talking about something otherworldly going on here. Now, what did they see? Well, they caught a glimpse from the past. They were seeing the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. They, they are witnessing the request that Jesus made when he prayed in John 17 in the upper room and he said, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. They are seeing Jesus as he always has been before the world existence. They see the past, but they're also seeing the present. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. They're seeing something present. They are seeing the hidden spiritual world of the everlasting kingdom. This is a world that all the saints who've gone before us are now seeing. You have a family member who died in Christ. They're seeing it. You Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, they're seeing it. Only very few times in Scripture has a man been able to see the spiritual realm that exists concurrently with our own. Think about it. I just read the other day, remember when Elisha said, Lord, open my servant's eyes, and the servant sees the army of God in the air. That was the spiritual realm. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Remember Moses. We know beyond a doubt that Moses saw the glory of God. Why? Because when he come down the mountain, what was going on with his face? He had to put a veil over his face because he's reflecting the glory of God. Very few people have ever seen that. And I want you to think about something. Right now, right now, Jesus is in heaven with the same blinding glory. I was thinking about this. Um, this week, if you read the devotions, I, I mentioned a scene in, on Wednesday's devotion, a scene from Mount Sinai when Moses is up on the mountain with Jesus Christ and the, the people of Israel wanted to make an idol. Have you ever thought about that picture? The blinding, blazing glory of Jesus Christ is on Mount Sinai, covered in a cloud, so that the only person that can see it is Moses because he's in the cloud. The rest of the children of Israel, they can see the cloud... They know God is there. The Bible says it's thunder and lightning and it frightens them to death. And what do they still want to do? Make an idol. Now, are we any different? We have in Scripture the blinding, blazing glory of Jesus Christ right in the face of Scripture. The, 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 the apostles have made it clear we have a more sure word in Scripture. We see the glory of Christ, and yet what do we do for ourselves? We still make idols, don't we? 
But the disciples are also looking into the future. They were catching a glimpse of the glory that God would reveal in Jesus Christ. They, they heard Jesus speak about his sufferings and death. But there was a tangible sign that after his humiliation, there would be exaltation. That after his crucifixion, there would be glorification. Jesus would rise in a shining resurrection body. He would ascend to heaven and sit on God's majestic throne. And he would return in the clouds of glory at his second coming. When, and when Jesus was transfigured, the disciples glimpsed his everlasting glory. Now, this is speculation, but when they saw his glorified body after his resurrection, I don't think it was with the absolute blazing glory of God because the narratives don't mention it. So there's something different. Maybe his glorified body, this is Jaredology. Let me make this clear. This is not bibliology or or um, biblical theology, okay? This is Jaredology. I think that what they saw after Christ's resurrection was the type of body that we will inherit when we go to glory. And he was demonstrating that, okay? You can send me an email. I don't know if I'll get to it this week, okay? <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it wasn't just Jesus that the disciples saw on top of this mountain, did they? They also saw two men from the past. Look at verse number 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what do you talk about when you see friends you haven't seen for a while? I'm going to see um, my best friend from high school uh, Wednesday. I haven't seen him in a while. I'll say, what you been doing since the last time I saw you? Can you imagine here with Jesus? Yeah, what have you been doing the last 30 years? What you been doing up in heaven for the last thousand years? But notice what they decided to talk about. What did they want to talk about? They wanted to talk about the mission of Jesus, didn't they? They didn't want to talk about their golf score. They didn't want to talk about uh, their new sports car. They didn't want to talk about um, anything else but the mission of Jesus Christ. And from this, we, we can learn from these two short verses, we can learn some things about the afterlife. First of all, there is an afterlife. I was talking to a man the other day, and um, he, he's Catholic. And um, I was telling him, um, it's actually my chiropractor, if you want to know the truth, okay? I'll just say it like this, because it comes in handy. And I was telling him, I said, I said, you know, my back doesn't bother me much, but on Sundays, after two 40-minute sermons... Um, and he interrupted me. He said, boy, you speak a long time. And <laughs> he said, man, you're a talkative guy. And I said, well, I, I deferred. I said, well, how long is your homily? And he said, I don't know. He said, 10 minutes. He said, sometimes it's really long. It's 15 minutes. But man, they're really boring. This is what he said to me. We were able to talk about it. But anyway, uh, I went on to say, I'll just finish what I was telling him. Uh, my back doesn't bother me, but here... By the time I'm done standing in one space for 40 minutes, uh, if you notice, in the, if you ever attend the second service, I sit out there to rest my back so I can do it again because it hurts. But uh, anyway, 
Um, where was I going with that? I have literally completely lost my train of thought. I have no idea. I have no idea. We'll just move on. Secondly, uh, believers will have a relationship with God and with one another. Won't that be wonderful? They're talking to Jesus. Now, we talk to Jesus now by faith, don't we? We talk to the Father by faith. We will literally see the spiritual realm in glory, and we will see him face to face. That'll make it a whole lot easier, won't it? I mean, I don't know how you are when you talk to Jesus. I find the older I get, you know, it used to be when I was younger, I was driving in my vehicle, I'd be thinking about my plans and what I'd like to do and this and that and, and all these fun things. And now I finally get in the car and I just start praying. I just talk to God. Is that the way you are? And just one day, we will have that access to Jesus just like this. But we'll have a relationship with one another. We'll see our family. We'll see, we'll see Moses and Elijah. We'll see all of them. We'll have the perfect relationship. No hiding from one another. We, we'll actually be able to be who we really are in front of people. Hopefully you all won't be like picking your nose or anything like that. Up in, but that's from a conversation right before the uh, sermon that I have with somebody. So. Third, let me give you one more thing. Third, people will know they will share in His glory. Over and over and over, the Bible says that we will share that glory. As a matter of fact, we see it from this Scripture. What does it say about Moses and Elijah? How did they appear? In glory. We will have a reflected glory. Won't that be nice? Did you look in the mirror this morning when you got up and said, yep, there's that reflected glory? <laughs> you didn't, did you? But you will in heaven. It'll be glorious. It'll be wonderful. Now, here's a question for you. Of all the people that could have been up on the mountain, why these two men? Why these two men? Well, there's, there's a lot of different answers that have been suggested. But at the very least, these two men represent the whole Old Testament. Moses was the hero of the Exodus. He led Israel out of Egypt. And now I'm going to come back to that word Exodus in just a minute. He was famous for giving God's people the Ten Commandments, which, he, which was written on stone tablets and brought down from the mountain. Moses stood for the law. Elijah uh, stood for the prophets. After Moses, he was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah raised the dead. He shut the rain up in heaven and ju as judgment for Israel's sin. He prayed down fire to defeat the prophets of Baal, but he did not die. Remember, he was taken up in chariots of fire and his coat fell off and Elisha grabbed it, right? God promised further that one day Elijah would what? What would happen to Elijah? He would return. Therefore, people look to him as their once and future prophet. And so in those days, and you see it in the Gospels most of the time is where it's, it's listed, you'll see how the people referred to the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets. The Law and the Prophets. And together, Moses and Elijah made the Law and the Prophets. They stood for the whole thing. Therefore, their, their presence testified that Jesus had come to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. 
And he was a culmination of everything promised in scriptures. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on that mountain, it was as if the whole Old Testament was standing up to say that everything was coming together in Jesus Christ. Now, they weren't just simply standing there looking glorious. They were also having a serious conversation. The tense of the verb in verse number 30 suggested this was an ongoing discussion. But notice especially their theme. They enjoyed talking together, especially about theology, but of all the things that Moses and Elijah could have discussed, one thing demanded their attention above all others. And one thing they wanted to ask Jesus about more than anything else, it was his departure. When you go to 1 Peter, you see where Peter said that all the Old Testament saints and prophets searched the Scripture. He even said the angels searched the Scripture to, to understand about the coming of Jesus Christ. And so, of all the things that they talked about, they wanted to talk about His departure. This word departure is an interesting word. You know what it is? It's the Greek word for exodus. It's his exodus. Sometimes this uncommon word refers to death. Later, Peter would use it this way in one of his epistles. And if you want to look it up, 2 Peter 1.15, you'll see the word death there. So Moses and Elijah were talking about the death of Jesus, the exodus of Jesus. What an appropriate word, isn't it? I want you to think about it. How appropriate is that word exodus? The greatest salvation story of the Old Testament involves the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were obviously here talking about the cross and possibly his resurrection. Their own, listen, you want to know why they were so focused on that? Because they understood that their own salvation depended upon the work that Jesus needed to do. Like all the other saints of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah were saved by grace through faith in the Savior whom God promised to send. The New Testament says that, that God in His grace passed over the former sins until Jesus was crucified. Now their Savior was about to do His saving work. Isn't it any wonder that, that was a, their topic of conversation? I can't wait to see you accomplish my salvation for real because I know that God is only passing over my sin until the point where you pay for it. Wouldn't you have loved to be in that conversation? That would have been wonderful. Jesus accomplished the new exodus through his own death and resurrection. And this new exodus is the most important exodus. It's the most, actually, it's the most important thing that's ever happened in the universe. They were possibly three months from the most important event in the entire universe. It brings deliverance from bondage. It brings the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, and therefore it is and ought to be the source of endless, endless fascination for us. 
Jesus accomplished in his exodus, what he accomplished is worth a lifetime of careful study. And after that, an eternity of joyful praise. Now look at verse number 32. Now Peter and those who were with him <laughs> were heavy with sleep. Is that not us? We're sleepy, so to speak, spiritually so much of the time. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. You know, I don't blame Peter. He would have said what I was thinking. He didn't want the moment to end. Would you? If you saw Jesus in his eternal glory, would you want that moment to end? He wanted to make the glory last. He wanted to hold on to this mountaintop experience. He wanted the glory of Jesus to keep shining. He wanted to find a way to keep Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. Man, I'll be honest with you. If I had that choice, I'd ditch every single one of you for that. And you would too. Right? And so he offered to build three tabernacles, booths. Think feast of booths. That's the same word, feast of booths. There were two basic problems with this suggestion. And, and this is important. One, to put Moses and Elijah on the same level with Jesus is a big problem. Each prophet given his own tabernacle as if he deserved the same honor and recognition as Jesus himself. But there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger problem. And the biggest problem is this. His suggestion interfered with the plan of salvation. In a way, Peter was right. It was good for the disciples to be, to be with Jesus on the mountain. Every believer has a, a desire to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and the gaze on him forever. But the time for that everlasting glory is not yet. Peter was getting ahead of himself. Peter was getting ahead of himself and ahead of God. Now, he, he should have known from what Jesus said that Jesus still needed to suffer many things. But just like, we're just like him, we're dull to pick up on that stuff, aren't we? It's hardly surprising that Peter had that wrong response to Jesus. Left to ourselves... We are bound to come up with all kinds of wrong ideas about Jesus and how to worship him. And that is why we encourage people to read scripture, to listen to good sermons, to learn as much as you can about Jesus because our mind can come up with all kinds of bad ideas about it. And this is why we need to listen to Jesus. Look at what God said. Next verse, verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Father came down in the glory cloud. Now, let me tell you what this is. This is not a storm cloud. This is not a black cloud. This is a cloud of, of brightness. Have you ever been in a morning fog with the sun and the fog is just iridescent? 
you're in the fog itself and it just feels like there's light 360 degrees around you that's what they're experiencing this is the glory cloud that surrounds God this glory cloud made the disciples tremble with fear and it should because there's nothing less than the glory of God the Father the disciples were seeing what Moses saw when God descended on the tabernacle they're seeing what Solomon saw when God descended on the temple on the wings of the cherubim they were seeing the glory of Almighty God, His Shekinah glory. They're seeing the glory that Ezekiel saw leave the tabernacle. They're seeing the glory that Isaiah saw when he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Remember that? The radiant cloud that gave people a visible manifestation of His invisible glory. Now the cloud alone would have been enough to confirm God's presence and blessing, but God also spoke, and it was His voice that came from the cloud. And unlike Peter, God knew exactly what He was talking about. He identified Jesus as His Son, the Chosen One, the One whom the disciples must listen, to, uh, to whom the disciples must listen, and what God the Father said to Peter, James, and John needs to be understood against the background of the Old Testament. Look at what he said one more time. What did he say? He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is honestly full of Old Testament. Full of it. He is the chosen one. He's the son, I should say. Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. <clears throat> the Lord said to me, you are what? My son. What did he tell Peter and James and John? This is my son. Here in Psalm 2, the psalmist sees a conversation between the father and the son. He says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Guess what? He gives the Son as a gift. You ready? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I could preach a whole sermon just on that little phrase right there. So much in that little phrase. He's not only the Son, but He's the Chosen One. This is Old Testament language, most notably from Isaiah 42, verse number 1. Behold my servant. Now in Isaiah who is the servant? The Messiah, right? The Messiah. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. The Father delights in the Son. And if you are saved and in the Son, the Father also delights in you. Now that's hard for us to wrap our mind around sometimes, isn't it? That God actually delights in us. But it's through the Son that He does. Then He goes on, I have put My Spirit upon Him, and He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so Isaiah 42 is a Trinitarian verse. The Father, Son, and Spirit are mentioned. Now who do we have living inside of us? We have the Spirit. And of course, we know that if we have the Spirit, that's the same as having the Son, because Jesus said, I live inside you. They're one and the same. 
As we read Isaiah, we discover that God's chosen servant will offer his life. He will be crushed for our iniquities. His soul will be made an offering for our sin so that we can be counted righteous by God. By calling the Son his servant, therefore God was, the Father was confirming everything that Jesus had said to his disciples about suffering and death. To put it another way, God wanted to talk about the same thing that Moses and Elijah wanted to talk about. The salvation that Jesus would bring through his death on the cross as a suffering servant. God glorified Jesus for his suffering in our salvation. But then, there's one more thing. God told the disciples to listen to him. That's also an Old Testament echo. Specifically, Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 15. The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is a promise about Jesus. He said, you shall listen. Now the Lord goes on to say, three verses later, verse number 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words, he shall speak in my name, and I will myself will require it of him. Why does Jesus want them to listen to him? Because if you listen to him, you're listening to the words of God. And if you obey the words of God, you are blessed. If you do not listen to Jesus, you do not obey Jesus, you are not listening to God, you are not obeying God, and God will hold you accountable for those words that you hear that you did not obey. I need to wrap this up. How should should we respond to the glory of Jesus? Well, we respond by following the Lord's command to listen to him, don't we? This command is as much for us as it was for the first disciples. We are called to listen to what Jesus said about trusting him for eternal life. Beyond that, We're called to listen to everything that Jesus says. What is Jesus saying to you right now that demands your attention? Listen to his promise that he will forgive your sins. Listen to his assurance that he will receive you into the family of God. That's a hard one sometimes, isn't it? When the weight of our sin weighing upon us listen to the comfort that he will never abandon you and that he will be with you through all of life's troubles listen to the invitation of rest for your soul listen to the imperative to love God more than anything else love God more than anything Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the reminder that his power is made perfect in your weakness. Listen to the exhortation to live, leave bitterness behind and find your joy in him. Listen to the exhortation 
to costly discipleship. Listen as well to the rebuke that you need to turn away from some particular sin. Whatever Jesus is saying, whatever God commands, I I plead with you, dear believer, listen to Him. Lord, I pray that you will give us listening ears, eyes to see the glory of Christ, ears to listen to the Father. May we be careful to obey every word of God. So often, Lord, we are like the children of Israel. The blazing glory of God is on the mountaintop. We can't see it because we don't have spiritual eyes. We see it by faith. But so many times, we instead are creating our own idols in our hearts. And therefore, we do not listen to the words of Jesus. Lord, I pray that once again, as I've been praying, that you will give us the desire to see the glory of the, of the glorified, crucified, and risen Christ. And may we listen to every word that he says. In Christ's name, amen.